Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings. With me today in uh, the uh, fourth floor conference room on on uh, Beach Hall on a grizz, kind of a grizzly gray yuck day. Oh, yeah, ugly. Here in Annapolis uh, is Ward Carroll, the uh, Director of Outreach and Marketing for the Naval Institute. Ward, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's Beat Army Week. Beat Army. And uh, if you didn't listen to last week's special sports edition of the Proceedings Podcast with Coach Niamatololo and uh, Malcolm Perry, who has actually just been nominated for the Manning Award in addition to receiving AAC Offensive Player of the Year honors. So, you know, pep rallies will be going on every night this week, and it'll be some campus hijinks here on the yard, as we know. And uh, on paper, we're looking good. But, you know, as we said during the show with Coach, it, you know, Army-Navy is a really special beast, and you never know what's going to happen. People, never. people bring it for that, that game. And it looks like the weather's going to be god-awful. <laughs> so, you know. It normally is. It's be a lot of fun. Philly. It's in some way or another, either freezing cold or, uh, or rainy. And so it looks like we got the rainy part on Saturday up there in Philly. And you'll be up there. I will be up there uh, holding the, the down box yep. on the home sideline. So if you're watching on CBS television, maybe if I'm standing next to the coach, you might see me. Or if the play crashes into me, you might see me, which has happened a couple of times this year. But it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, as anybody who's ever been associated with the Army-Navy game knows, it's a lot of pageantry and uh, special feeling at the end of it, regardless of who wins uh, your all on the same side, and that's a very special thing. So, um, and all of us who went to the Naval Academy can recall Army Navy games and so forth and so on. The first one I ever did was in the old JFK Stadium when I was a plebe, freezing cold, right there on the Schuylkill, wind blowing. Yep, I right remember that. that that stadium. And then the rest were at the Vet. You know, both facilities no longer there, and now we do it uh, when it's in Philly. It's at the Link, the home of the the, the Eagles. Yep. Um, and that stadium can get pretty cold as well. It's not exactly uh, enclosed, um, but uh, it's gonna gonna be a lot of fun. Last Thursday, the Naval Institute hosted Defense Forum Washington, uh, downtown D.C. at the uh, Museum. Uh, one of the final events happening at the Museum before that uh, facility closes and is repurposed by uh, Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies. But the Defense Forum Washington was a great event. We had the Acting Secretary of the Navy, uh, uh, um, Secretary Modley. Uh, then we had um, Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia, who talked uh, very eloquently about uh, defense budgets and continuing resolutions and things outside the defense budget that greatly impact things like shipbuilding and, and uh, readiness. Uh, then we had a great panel discussion that included um, uh, a number of uh, three stars, uh, Navy uh, Admiral Kilby, the Marine McSiddick general in charge. Uh, we had uh, Ron O'Rourke from the Congressional Research Service, uh, that was a great conversation. Overall, Defense Forum Washington was just a, a really great event. If you want to see the video of it, you can go onto the Naval Institute website and you can uh, just search for Defense Forum Washington and, and click on the video. We uh, live casted all of that uh, and it's still available on our website for anyone who wants to uh, listen to those uh, speakers. Also, the new CNO, uh, Admiral Gilday, was there and he was interviewed by Bob Work, our chairman. Uh, it was really interesting to get the new CNO's uh, perspective 
uh, particularly as it was the day after he published his Frago, the Frag Order, uh, and he talked about that. And then you went racing back here to Annapolis to interview the coach and the, yep. and the quarterback of the Navy football team. And and we should also mention that one of the panelists was Mike Petters, the CEO of Huntington Ingalls. That's right. And that's also a, a peg to bring up the commissioning of the new Kennedy CVN 79, which happened on Saturday down in uh, Newport News. Uh, that was a cool event. Um, I know Ben Werner was down there for that and did a nice job covering it for us, for USNI News. And, you know, that's special to me. I cruised on the CV67 version of USS John F. Kennedy in 86-87. Um, so uh, that namesake, second in the Ford class. Uh, and we'll see uh, if they have less bugs to work out than the the flagship in that class you know still working on those things but uh yeah ceo petters uh hinted that they would definitely have a lot less bugs right because yeah, uh, one would know. hope that you learn yeah. as you go along this exactly. is doing spiral development as they call it in the procurement world uh, but we had a lot of uh you know generational sh aspirations all crammed onto one platform and uh you know you got to work through it i think in time uh, at the cost of a lot of money and time, uh, that that will be a fantastic class of ship that we will forget the capabilities of the Nimitz class in the face of what a Ford class carrier can do. In the meantime, it's a lot of heartache and a lot of grist for the trade press mill in terms of what's going wrong, wrong with the uh, Ford class, including the nuke power plant just shutting down summarily at one point recently. And also the weapons elevators are not quite working yet. Um, and they're, again, using that electromagnetic technology that the catapults are using without any DT, right? Just on the platform at sea testing. And that turns out that there's a difference between what looks good on paper and what actually works when you get out in the real world. So I'm confident, having spent some time around developmental tests and operational tests, that they'll figure it out. But there certainly has been significant gnashing of teeth and significant cost overruns. So, um, yeah, let's hope that CVN-79 has less problems. And then s the subsequent ships in that class have exponentially fewer and so forth and so on. Uh, and then we were also, uh, we're sharing this um, with our, our listeners and most, of, I'm sure, have, have caught this in the news. Uh, on Friday, there was uh, a terrible uh, incident uh, at NAS P Pensacola when a, uh, a foreign flight student uh, decided to uh, shoot as many Americans uh, on base as he could, which turned out to be three, an ensign, a Naval Academy graduate, class of 2019, who was down there just starting his naval aviation career, and, and two uh, airmen. Uh, and so the FBI is uh, is investigating that with an initial call that uh, it appears to have ties to terrorism, although I think there's, you know, the jury is still out completely on that, but uh, that... That news, um, you know, certainly saddened the uh, the naval family over the weekend, and uh, you know a lot is going on that that will uh, that story will continue to develop over the next, you know, days and weeks, uh, and will I'm sure have an impact on the way that the United States uh, vets foreign students coming in to to you know attend U.S. military schools, right? Yeah, and anybody who's gone naval aviation, anybody who wing, wears wings of gold has been through that building schools command headquarters there at uh, main site at NAS Pensacola. Um, just it tragic doesn't begin to uh, label that, that 
that situation. And as you said, we'll see what the backstory is. The Saudi flight student apparently went back to Saudi Arabia in recent months. And uh, anecdotally, we're hearing that he got radicalized when he was back home. But uh, what a senseless, senseless tragedy. Yeah. One other item before we get to our guest. Okay. Um, the HSC-85 Firehawks pinged me on Twitter, um, and they would ask that we got the word out on this. And, and uh, Jack McCain happens to be one of the uh, pilots in the squadron. And they also gave me some grief. Somebody under the uh, squadron Twitter handle gave me grief for being a hard grader when I taught ethics way back in the day, which I take great exception to. All I needed you to do was the reading. That was it. Everything else was pretty easy. So in any case, we'll let that comment slide. Uh, the, those guys do my heart good that they're out there in the fleet doing it up. But they've asked that we socialize that they're trying to get the, the funding to get Bureau number 163787. It's an HH-60, which is the SEAL delivery variant of the H-60, into the Naval Aviation Museum down in Pensacola. And so if you can help, if you want to help, go up nhahistoricalsociety.org. Again, that is nhahistoricalsociety.org and help those guys get that great type model series in the Naval Aviation Museum where it belongs. All right. That's a pretty cool story. Nice to hear from our uh, fans out there on Twitter asking for our help with a GoFundMe. That's pretty sure. neat. Uh, okay, well, let's get to our guest today. Uh, so in the December issue of Proceedings, if you have it in front of you, uh, turn to page 62, you'll find an article called Fighting Along a Knife Edge in the Falklands by Lieutenant Commander Jeff Vendenagel, U.S. Navy. It is the winning essay in the um, Rising Historian category of the CNO Naval History Essay Contest for 2019, which was sponsored by General Dynamics. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Vandenegel is on the phone with us uh, from Norfolk this morning, and he is uh, uh, the flag aide to Commander Submarine Forces U.S. Navy. Jeff, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. All right, so uh, the uh, the CNO Naval History Essay Contest, this was the third iteration of it, 2019, started by uh, CNO Richardson a few years ago. Uh, where he wanted to um, sort of reinvigorate the interest in the profession uh, to its history, right? And and dig back into naval history and find lessons from things that we've done before that the Navy, the Marine Corps team has done before and apply them forward. And so in, in your essay, you looked back at the 1982 Falklands War, the Royal British Royal Navy fighting against the Argentines over the Falklands or Malvinas Islands. First, just give us, for our listeners who maybe don't remember that or younger uh, than, than when it started, uh, just a 30,000-foot view of, the, of the, the conflict as it happened, and then we'll delve into the uh, lessons. Sure. And uh, let me first say that uh, as an active-duty naval officer, uh, my opinions do not represent uh, those of Consublant, the Navy, or uh, Department of Defense. So, uh, that being said, so uh, the war, 1980. 1982, uh, Argentina was having uh, problems at home. It was ru ruled by a military junta, uh, and so they were looking to distract the populace. And so uh, there's these islands, the uh, Falklands, very close to Argentina, or as you uh, talked about, the Malvinas is what uh, Argentina calls them. And so uh, a lot of uh, posturing, a lot of diplomatic negotiations going back and forth. Uh, Britain doesn't think that uh, Argentina is going to be so brash as to uh, seize the islands and uh, Argentina doesn't think that uh, Britain's going to 
you know, really cares about them enough to fight over them, especially in this age of decolonization. So uh, April 1982, Argentina lands troops on the island, seizes them, and then uh, uh, the British dispatch a task force under Admiral Sandy Woodward, uh, led by uh, first getting down there a few fast-attack submarines. And uh, throughout the war, which really only lasts about uh, three months, uh, it's really a struggle of the British to establish air and naval superiority around the islands to support an amphibious landing to retake the islands. It's uh, sort of a message uh, that you know we're not just going to allow uh, allow you to throw your weight around and uh, seize islands, especially because the populace there wants to remain uh, British. And so uh, really the only example of major conventional naval warfare since World War II. So Admiral Woodward called it Fighting Along the Knife's Edge, and that's also the title of your article, Fighting Along a Knife Edge. What does that mean, a knife edge? Uh, yeah, so he was referring to, in his uh, excellent book, 100 Days, which uh, I would definitely recommend for anyone that's looking for a, an easy read and uh, a good one that surmises the war. Uh, he was talking about how difficult the fight was uh, and how, how much of an issue, uh, or just how close it was for the British. Um, so he said uh, something to the effect of uh, that the fight was along a knife edge for the British, uh, him realizing more than most that one major mishap, a mine, explosion, a fire, any sort of problem uh, with his fleet, and especially he was talking about his two small aircraft carriers, would have uh, almost certainly proved fatal to the whole operation. And so uh, despite the fact that it's uh, the mighty Royal Navy, uh, it was by no means a, a sure thing, and uh, they saw that with the uh, how much uh, the casualties they took, the ships that they lost, and how difficult it was for them to capture these small islands. And so uh, I think there's a lot of lessons there, and uh, especially if, if the, as the U.S. Navy prepares for its own potential fight along a knife edge, which uh, any sort of fight over these contested islands in the Western Pacific, the Senkakus, the Spratleys, the Paracels, all those would likely be a very difficult fight, another fight along the knife edge. So we can take some lessons from Admiral Woodward. So the other thing you point out, and you were just speaking about it uh, before, when we're talking about how fragile the entry into war can be or just how hair trigger the, the entry into war can be. And so you quote Admiral Woodward again as he's en route the Atlantic and he's sort of 2020 hindsight. He said, of course, there's no way the Falklands are worth a war, whether we win it or not. Equally, there's no way you should let the Argentinians or anyone else for that matter get away with international robbery. So that that's the same matrix, the same logic that we would apply to the barrier islands or anything else in the uh, South China Sea or wherever. Absolutely. I think there's a, that hits on some of the key similarities between the Falklands and some of these contested islands in the Western Pacific. And I think it really boils down to political similarities, geographic similarities, and then uh, similarities with the opposing military. So uh, like you talked about, politically, uh, really, both islands are the Falklands or Senkakus or these things in, in the Western Pacific, right? They're not really exciting at all. They're very small. Uh, essentially, no one lives there. There's, on the Falklands, there's more sheep than people. Uh, so there's not any sort of huge economic or uh, strategic reason to fight for the uh, Falklands. There's, in the Falklands, right, a democracy fighting against an autocratic government, the British versus the Argentinians. And then, uh, like we talked about, neither side really think the other would be willing to fight for them. So, And then the Western Pacific, lots of the same political uh, forces at play. So... Uh, I use the Senkakus as an example, but it applies to several of the others, especially in the South China Sea. So 
The Sankankos, these tiny islands uh, northeast of Taiwan, uh, near the East China Sea. Uh, again, very little economic value, no real reason. You know, they're not uh, huge oil uh, deposits or anything like that. Uh, if there was going to be a fight, it would be, uh, again, a democracy, the U.S., facing, again, a, some sort of autocratic country with the Chinese ruled by the uh, Communist Party. And it's not uh, too difficult to think of a similar situation to what led to war in the Falklands of uh, government looking to distract the population. So you, know, you could think of a hypothetical of the Hong Kong protests continue, China looking to distract population from that, show of strength, well, let's go seize these islands, so give a message to the Hong Kong protesters, give a message to Taiwan that uh, even though we're having these issues at home, uh, we are still not to be messed with. An interesting similarity there with the Senkakus is that you know, the uh, the United States recognizes that those islands are contested, right? That they are claimed by the Japanese, they're claimed by Taiwan, and they're claimed by mainland China. Uh, and we don't, we don't recognize, the United States does not recognize them as Japanese territory. Post-World War II, we, we recognize the rights of the Japanese government to administer the Senkakus, which is different than saying that it's Japanese territory. But uh, as all those as those three entities, uh, the two countries and then Taiwan, which we no longer recognize as a uh, as an independent nation, but they still vie for the fishing rights and the EEZ around uh, the Senkakus. And, and there's fairly frequently there are there are uh, particularly Coast Guard vessels from all three sides that, that get into sort of shouldering matches uh, to keep each other away from those islands. And, it, and it, you know, it's not it's not science fiction to think that that could easily escalate into a situation where the United States and our, um, you know, our alliance with Japan is, is called into action. All sorts of messy examples throughout history of uh, uh, how we end up in a war. And I don't think it's too far fetched to think that they, uh, those uh, Senkakus may, uh, may could be one example or one excuse to get into a war. So yeah, you also- even no one really wants it over Island. So insignificant. Yeah, and Jeff, you also point out, and and I think in my editor's page, I called it the extreme away game for the Brits in the Falklands, nearly 8,000 nautical miles away from the British homeland. The Falkland Islands were a a long, long distance away with uh, the need for several bases uh, that were like the Ascension Islands, example, in the middle of the Atlantic as a forward staging base that was still several thousand miles away from the objective of the uh, uh, of the Falklands. So this that's a similar another similarity, another analogy of, you know, the, the, the far Western Pacific being an extreme away game for the United States and a, a home game, you know, for the Chinese. That defined the war, really, uh, because that allowed the entire Argentinian military to, to fight essentially for the Falklands, whereas the British could really only, uh, especially with their global obligations, uh, they could only devote part of their Navy to the fight. And so it makes it another great lesson for the Navy as it prepares for any sort of potential conflict in the Western Pacific that, again, uh, with how close the Senkakus are, uh, or Spratleys, Paracels, etc., from mainland China, something on the order of two to three hundred nautical miles, the likely the entire Chinese military could fight for that against just part of the United States Navy. So it makes it uh, significantly more difficult. So let's talk about the warfare area lessons learned, starting with undersea warfare. I think there's uh, two key actions that I wanted to focus on. So uh, the HMS Conqueror sinking a cruiser, the General Belgrano, and the Argentinian submarine uh, San Luis, its war patrol. So uh, 
On the 2nd of May, HMS Conqueror, uh, one of the first submarines to get down to the Falklands uh, when the war starts off, sinks the uh, Argentinian cruiser General Belgrano. Uh, and they shot them from a absolutely ridiculous range of just 1,400 yards, which is pretty nuts. So, uh, And then as a result of that attack, uh, and out of... Uh, Fear of additional submarine attacks and acknowledgement of their weak ASW capabilities, the entire Argentinian surface fleet withdraws support for the rest of the war. So that leaves uh, just the submarine San Luis as the single Argentinian warship at sea for much of the war. Uh, and despite facing the entire British task force on its own, which at the time was widely recognized as the best in shallow water ASW, uh, the San Luis completes a five-week patrol unscathed, allegedly staging multiple attacks on uh, British warships that were thwarted because of technical issues. So uh, I took away, obviously, several big lessons there. One, uh, as a hat tip to the nuclear power gods in the submarine force, uh, showed off the benefits of nuclear power. Uh, within two weeks of war starting, there was three uh, fast-attack submarines off the coast of the Falklands well before the rest of the fleet arrived, and that gives uh, options to the U.S. Navy as well with our large fast-attack fleet. Well, so we talk uh, about the, the, the war starting, really, uh, Argentina invaded, quote-unquote, the Falklands. Were they opposed at all, or was there any opposition there? There were, I think, uh, 80 Royal Marines there. Um, I don't think there were any casualties. It was sort of a bloodless takeover. Um, so it, just because of the sheer number of Argentinian troops that landed, it was, it was not the Royal Marine detachment there was not uh, really designed to uh, defend against so did, did they like become that. prisoners of war or just remind us what what happened for those two weeks so the Arge argentinians take over the falklands the the royal marines are there they surrender i guess uh as you said it was a bloodless invasion and then what happened for the two weeks before the sub sinks uh, the cruiser so there's a lot of uh diplomatic negotiations and negotiations and uh everyone's not exactly sure if this Thing is going to lead to war. So the British task force is uh, arming up, getting all the Royal Marines, embarking them in various ports and heading out while the, the fast attacks are sprinting down there. Um, and then there's this uh, military exclusion zone, uh, essentially 200 nautical miles around uh, the Falklands. And that's where uh, some of these complex rules of engagement comes into play of where British submarines can and cannot attack uh, Argentinian warships. And so as the, uh, as the fleet is going down, sailing down, the, uh, like I said, the uh, Conqueror and its fellow fast attacks are looking for the Argentinian fleet, and that's really where some of the confusion comes in when they find this uh, Argentinian cruiser. And then for 27 hours, uh, the Conqueror has to stalk the Belgrano and her two escorts. Uh, so that's pretty difficult to do. To make any sort of attack on a surface action group is difficult to stalk them for 27 hours waiting for rules of engagement, uh, that must have been incredibly difficult. And so that was one lesson that I took away, uh, is that uh, today's submarines, we have to be ready to fight with complex rule, rules of engagement, or ROE. I think uh, too often, and I fell uh, victim to this a lot as well, we, we think it's just going to be sort of a light switch of uh, a binary option of we'll be at peace and everything will be great, and then all of a sudden we'll get a message and it'll say conduct unrestricted warfare. And Certainly that's happened in the past sometimes, but uh, it's much more likely that it's going to be a gradual shift of uh, ROE, and we need to be ready to fight like that. So those 27 hours were the high command trying to figure out whether they wanted to allow the Conqueror to uh, unleash weapons on the Argentinian battle group? Exactly. They're trying to figure out. So it, uh, the 
the Belgrano and her escorts had not entered in this zone where the British had said any Argentinian warships here were going to attack. Uh, so exactly, the British were trying to figure out if uh, they could still attack this, if this uh, surface action group was a threat to the British task force and the carriers were coming down, and eventually decided that it was such a threat and they didn't want to miss the opportunity that uh, Margaret Thatcher gave permission they, and they uh, very quickly destroyed the Belgrano. And as you said, the Argentinians have little to no ASW capability, so they were probably tracking the surface action group and the embarked Marines. They probably knew where they were in terms of, uh, you know, their, their way forward. Um, but they had no idea that the subs were there until their, their ships started blowing up. Exactly. And that's, uh, another one of my lessons is that, uh, that I took away from this is, uh, submarines are good at a lot of things. Uh, we are not very good at, uh, diffusing, uh, tense situations or doing presence missions or things like that. Because, so much of what we do relies on our stealth and uh, presence missions and sort of warning uh, the enemy uh, we're not very good at because they don't even know we're there. So, for example, Belgrano could have been, been a sort of surface ship was there, right? would have been a heightened posture, could have been uh, warned away from the Falklands, but it was a submarine fail following them. So even though that submarine was there for 27 hours, Belgrano had no idea until two torpedoes rips open her hull and sinks her soon after. So uh, before we move on to surface warfare lessons, I just want to highlight this. Um, you get, Getting back to the uh, Argentinian submarine, the San Luis, as being the single warship underway after Belgrano was sunk, uh, you point out that uh, the British ASW efforts against that single target were futile for weeks, and the British fired an astonishing 200 torpedoes at false contacts over five weeks, rapidly depleting their inventory. So yet another lesson that just the presence or the thought of the presence of a submarine can certainly make surface forces incredibly nervous. Exactly, and highlights uh, a lesson we've learned in multiple war world wars and uh be good for us to remember today, which certainly the Navy is working on now, is uh, anti-submarine warfare is extremely difficult, extremely resource, demands a lot of resources and demands a lot of time. So, um, so got to keep working on that. You also say the Falklands War also showed how inadvisable it is to use submarines for anything other than surveillance or destruction of enemy warships. So delivery of SEAL teams doesn't really fall in that mission set? So... Uh, I think the the submarine force today is getting better at doing a lot of uh, different missions, uh, especially in the in the Falklands. Uh, right, the Argentinians sent their only other operational submarine, the Santa Fe, to deliver a few troops. It wasn't any sort of uh, insertion into any sort of soft insertion. It was really just ferrying supplies. And uh, while the Santa Fe was on the surface, British helicopters found it and destroyed it. So. The Argentinians lost half their operational submarine force for really no gain. Uh, and so I think the message there is that uh, if you're going to, a lot of times it's uh, attractive to go and send these submarines off to all sorts of extraneous missions and protect this unit and go off and do these things. But uh, there's things that the submarine force can do, and there's things that they are extremely good at. And sinking ships is one of them. And so that probably was a better use of the Santa Fe by the Argentinians out there threatening the, the British task force instead of just delivering troops and supplies. All right, Jeff, let's move on to the surface warfare lessons from the Falklands. Uh, tell us, uh, part, a big part of this in, in your article is the, the focusing on the air threat. Talk, talk about that for a minute. 
Exactly. Well, uh, uh, there's not many surface warfare lessons uh, to talk about because, uh, you know, like you allude to, the uh, the Argentinians withdrew their fleet to port. So, the big lessons I took away were the difficulty associated with hiding surface warships, and then once those ships are found, the difficulty uh, associated with defending them, especially in the age of the missile, and then finally once those missiles hit those ships. Uh, how often they tend to be one-hit ships and how difficult it is to keep them afloat, or at least uh, mission-capable. So, for example, uh, so much of naval warfare uh, has been keeping your fleet hidden and avoiding uh, scouting efforts of the Navy. But uh, right, if Nelson could find the French and Spanish fleets sailing around the 18th and 19th century, and if Admirals Fletcher and Spruance could find the Japanese near Midway, then surely today's fleets, armed with all sorts of new technology, uh, are going to find surface fleets uh, that we're not going to be able to keep them hidden for very long at all. And I think that bore out in the Falklands War. So as the British task force was sailing down, uh, transports, not even reconnaissance aircraft from the Argentinian Air Force, tracked the British task force as it's sailing to the Falklands. Uh, the Argentinians surmised the fleet's location just using uh, Harrier radar returns and where they are disappearing sort of guessing that the carrier was around that area. And then uh, one that jumped out to me was the five Argentinian trawlers that the uh, that sailed around the British warships. These trawlers reported the positions of the British fleet uh, back to the mainland. And that jumped out at to me for, uh, for Western Pacific lessons because now instead of five trawlers, the Chinese have uh, their maritime militia, which... Uh, probably somewhere in the hundreds or thousands of trawlers and merchants and things uh, if from what uh, open source reporting is uh, estimated as. So, again, just makes it very difficult to keep surface ships hidden in uh, today's day and age. And it'll be d- bad form to start taking out trawlers, uh, you know, because you imagine they are um, providing intel. That would, that would be something that uh, in other than full-out war uh, would be a party foul. Exactly. And even if you wanted to, which ones do you take out, right? Turns out there's thousands upon thousands of trawlers in the Western Pacific. Uh, so, and they're all blended in there. Very difficult to figure out which one guy is on his cell phone reporting the position of your strike group back home. All huge challenges that the Navy's working on. Yeah. And that, that harkens back to your point a few minutes ago about the rules of engagement at the start of the, uh, of the conflict, right? That the, the Brits were trying to figure out what they wanted to do and whether they could let uh, their submarine attack the uh, the Belgrano, and so at, usually at the start, it's not going to be as you said a switch from peacetime ROE to you know conduct unrestricted warfare. There's going to be some you know nuances to ROE and you know the trawlers trawlers and and other other vessels that might be providing ISR to an adversary uh, may still be outside of the ROE of what's uh, you know what ships are um, uh, you know able to be attacked. Exactly. And the, the British eventually did sink uh, one of the trawlers, called, uh, the Narwhal, but uh, against the Chinese maritime militia, right? just so many trawlers, camouflage amongst so many other trawlers, it makes it a, an extremely difficult problem. So talk for a minute about the HMS Sheffield and some of the lessons learned for the surface warfare community, not just the Royal Navy, but also our Navy uh, that, that came from that uh, uh, Super A-10 Dard uh, launching an Exocet anti-ship missile at the at the British destroyer. Well, the Falklands War was the uh, the first feature, the first use of modern anti-ship cruise missiles 
against uh, a modern navy, against a major navy. And so uh, that attack that you talked about uh, sort of ushered in really the missile age for me in that a, a single aircraft launches a single anti-ship missile and then sinks a single destroyer. And it's not like the destroyer uh, wasn't ready or didn't know what was going on, right? It knew the threat. It knew about exosets. It was in a air defense posture. And despite all that, uh, it made some mistakes with its communications that were that affected its uh, missile defense systems. And so uh, it, with just this one missile hitting, uh, launched by one aircraft, uh, they lose a, a relatively new destroyer. Uh, and so I think that just shows today um, how difficult it will be to defend against these these highly capable ASCOMs or anti-ship cruise missiles. No, when you're talking about uh, Super Entendard with an Exocet versus hypersonics and all the other things we're talking about these days and standoff range and, and response times, and the problem is orders of magnitude harder now. And we're talking about Harriers versus A4s and Super Entendards. You know, it's very legacy aircraft there. And that was a tough problem. And now you talk about, you know, fifth generation airplanes with sixth generation weaponry and then hypersonic missiles coming from the mainland um, or if they can be stationed on the barrier islands. It's that that problem is what we've been hearing more and more proceedings authors talk about. It's it's gigantic. Exactly. The one uh, fact that jumped out for me was that uh, the Argentinians only had five to six Exocet missiles and they didn't really know how to use them overly well. And even though they had just those few missiles, they use them to sink a destroyer, sink a high-value transport, and damage another destroyer. And today, a single Chinese Hubei missile craft has more anti-ship cruise missiles than the entire Argentinian military did in 1982. So I think any sort of uh, uh, measures that we can take to to realize that we're living in the age of the missile and put missiles on everything that we can with the distributed maritime operations that the Navy's doing and realize that uh, missile defense are, are never going to be perfect. So the more that we can distribute the fleet and farm it out to smaller platforms and realize that ships are going to be lost, I think uh, the stronger we'll be in the future. Uh, talk for a minute about carrier and air warfare lessons that the, uh, the British learned. Falcons highlighted the, the pros and the cons of the aircraft carrier. So on one hand, it was the only reliable source of British air power, right? So the I think the only major Royal Air Force contribution was five Vulcan bomber attacks, and those required 17 in-flight refuelings. Uh, and then the carrier stopped large portions of Argentinian air attacks with just the with the presence of the Harrier. So there's really no, and Emma Woodward talks about it, there's no way they could have fought the war without the carriers. But on the other side also shows uh, a lot of their disadvantages, right? So um, that's a lot of capability in a single platform. And Wood, uh, Admiral Woodward wrote, uh, there is the, quote, inescapable truth that the Argentine commanders failed inexplicably to realize that had they hit the carrier Hermes, the British would have been finished. They never really went after the one target that would surely have given them victory. And so uh, because of how vulnerable the carriers were, it dictated a lot of Admiral Woodward's tactics, and he repeatedly had to uh, keep them further and further out to sea to protect them. So I think today we can learn uh, a lot on how he used them and how they could potentially be used in the Western Pacific of let them do what they do best, and that's uh, air defense, right? No platform can do air defense the way that the aircraft carrier can. But then there's a lot of other platforms out there that can do uh, some of the aircraft carrier's missions better than the aircraft carrier. So ASUW, or anti-surface warfare, anti-submarine warfare, 
strike in a contested environment. All those sorts of things. If you farm those out to some uh, smaller, more specialized platforms that can free up the aircraft carrier to do what it does best and probably do it at a further range uh, where it's uh, easier to protect. Well, I, I, you make the point that uh, that nothing does air defense better than an aircraft carrier, but as we've been talking about the, the in the age of missiles and anti-ship cruise missiles, the problem is you know aircraft carriers are good at defending themselves against other aircraft. They're not so great at defending against sea-skimming anti-ship cruise missiles that are coming in at uh, you know over Mach one, even in some cases over Mach two, and in the future you know iterations at, at hypersonic speed. So. Uh, aircraft carriers projecting power out to a thousand nautical miles, you know that's a that's a key aspect of the fight. But aircraft carriers defending themselves against anti-ship cruise missiles that are coming from 500 miles, a thousand, fifteen hundred miles away, you know that's a tougher proposition. Definitely, and I think uh, you solve a lot of that problem by uh, at least until you really secured the area, which the uh, the British really never did in the Falklands. That. Uh, you let the carrier focus on what it does best and keep it further out to sea where it's easier to defend against a lot of those threats and then uh, let some more s- smaller specialized platforms take on a lot of the other missions. And uh, I think that's overall uh, best for the fleet. So well, all things that the uh, I know the, the Navy is looking at. So, so uh, at the end here, you, you have a quote from um, uh, former Navy Admiral, U.S. Navy Admiral uh, Harry Train, who was an Atlantic Fleet commander back in the 80s. I remember him. I remember working uh, for his daughter, Liz Train, later on uh, in the 2000s. But he wrote uh, that the Falklands War is a goldmine of lessons. uh, And as tensions continue to rise around the Western Pacific, uh, the Navy should look to mine that seam to prepare. And then you go on to say, the Chinese are doing so. So you did have a, a footnote at the end there that uh, points to a book by Chris Young, People's Liberation Army, Navy, Power Projection, Anti-Access Denial, Lessons from the Falklands-Malvinas Conflict that was has been cited in uh, U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. So the, there is some evidence out there if, if uh, some of our podcast nerds want to delve deep into what the Chinese took uh, they can read your article. Take a look at the end notes. Your final end note there, uh, number forty-five, gets to some of the points that the um, that, that that the Chinese have taken from this uh, this war. Well, as we well. we've discussed what some of them are numbers of Hubei's, right? I mean these yeah, these kinds right, of things right. they have, yeah. you know, um, more basic platforms and in greater numbers that they can that they are planning on some losses in the course of open conflict Mul- it would be multi- a home game for them multi-access attacks multi right that's what i mean so you know because right, you're going right. shorter ranges you can come multi-axis so like the argentinians it's a home game for the chinese yep. jeff any parting shots on your article before we uh, wrap things up I'm just uh, amazed uh, I'm here, and you talked about, uh, to bring it back to the beginning, about C.N.O. Richardson and how he uh, developed that contest, and because uh, this topic really just started uh, with me giving some training uh, a year ago while I was on deployment in the Western Pacific, uh, giving some wardroom training and uh, trying to relate it to the for the JOs and the crew uh, to what we were doing out there and realizing that there's some uh, similarities between the Falklands uh, war in 1982 and uh, what we're doing out in the Western Pacific today. So thrilled that it went from uh, some origin training that I threw together into uh, getting to come on uh, your podcast and talk about it today. So I uh, thank you for that. Yeah, and this should inspire our listeners and those who, uh, if you 
either um, uh, want to write yourself or if you know somebody in the sea services who wants to write, the CNO Naval History Essay Contest has been uh, renewed again for 2020 by uh, CNO Gilday. And the uh, NAV admin message that will announce the 2020 uh, essay contest and all the rules of who can apply, you know, who can write and how you can write and the uh, categories and the, uh, the details of how to submit your essays. Uh, the Naval Institute essentially administers this contest uh, for, we have a sponsor? for the CNO. General Dynamics has graciously stepped up again. Very well. Uh, and for our listeners, uh, we didn't mention at the start that the prize money for this contest, like most of our essay contests, is significant, right? So, uh, Jeff, I, I hope your shipmates don't realize that you uh, took away a check for $5,000. Uh, <laughs> but first, first prize for this contest is $5,000. Second prize, I think, is $2,500. And third prize, $1,500. Well, he's on surety now so he doesn't have to worry about buying the bar in some foreign <laughs> port like when he was on sea duty right yeah, yeah that's true he can just go home in the quiet of afternoon traffic and although he's the aide so he doesn't go home that much he either. doesn't go home it's not really there. sure duty that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but but yes uh, so the uh the, the essay contest uh uh, should come out again soon. The uh, the NAV admin message announcing it will come out soon. The uh, deadline is probably at the uh, end of May. I think this past year was 31 May. Uh, we uh, got over 200 uh, essays over the last couple of years in this uh, essay contest. So it is it is tightly com- you know competed. But as I have told a lot of midshipmen here about our essay contest, you know your chances of winning the Virginia Lottery are one in seven point one million. Your chances of winning a Naval Institute essay contest, if you enter, are about one in a hundred, maybe one in a hundred and fifty. Uh, for some of our contests, it's as low as one in fifty or sixty. So if you have a great idea, if you do some wardroom training like Jeff did. Uh, and you think, boy, I could turn this into a paper with a, you know, maybe a weekend's worth of work. It's worth the investment. Yeah, you do of have time. to submit a paper. You do have to submit to, a to paper. To get in those odds. No, a- absolutely. <laughs> that, right. Your yep. odds are that if you submit, if you submit a, a paper. paper. Yes. Right? Not just yes. walking around the yeah. planet. No, no, no. Right. right. Your chances of and winning. And don't forget, we have a cool reception that happens in the summertime. That's right. Um, at the Navy Yard where you get to meet the CNO and, yep. and so forth and uh, hang out with us. You know, it's a lot of fun. So yep. that's that's a that should be an incentive. All right. There's a lot of recognition that comes with this. Yep. So, uh, well, Jeff, congratulations again for winning the 2019 CNO Naval History Essay Contest. Congrats uh, for being uh, in the December issue of Proceedings. Your article, Fighting Along a Knife Edge in the Falklands, is on page 60, starts on page 62 of the December pre- Proceedings. Uh, we look forward to what you'll write again for us uh, in coming essay contests. Great. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Well, that wraps up another uh, episode of the Proceedings Podcast. As Ward said at the beginning, this is Army-Navy week, so go Navy, beat Army. Uh, the uh, fall classic football game is uh, this Saturday, the 14th of uh, December. I think it starts at 3 p.m. And uh, Ward will be up there on the field, so look for him holding the down marker. And uh, next week, we'll catch you again with the podcast. We've got the uh, uh, authors of a Naval Institute Press book that's called Middle East 101, which is uh, just a great primer on everything that anybody needs to know about what happens and what the history of the of the Middle East is. So, And it's timely once again as a result of what just happened in Pensacola. It so certainly is. Understanding cultures and that sort of thing. Yeah, it certainly is. So go Navy, beat Army, and we'll catch you again uh, next week. Don't forget. Victory begins at the Naval Institute.